why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. For those of you that are thinking about going to Israel, I would encourage you, even if it's something that you're like, I'm not sure if I can afford it or I'm not sure if I want to go, if you at least make the time to come tonight to the informational meeting and hear about it, I think that, um, you know, it's really more about does the Lord want you to go? Because we all spend money on a lot of different things in life, don't we? Uh, we spend money on the things that matter most to us. And if the Lord's asking you to go, he'll make a way for it to happen. And so I just encourage you guys, if you're at all interested, come to the meeting tonight. I mean, even as we get into this text this morning and we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, to be able to stand kind of in the place where Jesus delivered this sermon is pretty, it's pretty awesome. I mean, I, I really do count it in honor that I've been there a couple times. And as I teach through the word, I'm like in my mind placing myself in some of these locales and it just changes everything in the way you read scripture. Um, but this morning we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, again, specifically in verses 27 through 30. Um, Josh said so eloquently a couple weeks ago that if you haven't been offended yet, um, just come back next week. Um, this morning, I both was excited and terrified about this passage too, and the elder said I should walk up here with like one hand and an eye patch on as we read through lust and just be like, obviously I struggle, you know, like let's all cut our hands off and gouge our eyes out this morning. But um, it's, it's kind of a terrifying passage. On the same token, I, I was really challenged this week as I was studying and reading through it that there's, there's actually a lot of hope in this as we're reading through it as well because God doesn't want to leave you where you're at. Uh, his whole purpose in all of this is to reveal the problem so that you know he can deal with it, amen? There is a plan and a purpose for you, and you're not stuck. So as we've been through talking through the Sermon on the Mount, um, I just I want to do a little recap here for those of you that haven't been around or aren't really sure what's taking place. But um, this is a sermon that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago, standing on the side of a hill, mountain-ish, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee there. And uh, this is Jesus' most famous sermon. Um, and he's got these crowds following him up onto this hillside as he's going to present this message. And um, just to set the setting for you guys, his disciples are, uh, I want you to imagine this, are sitting with him and he's talking to them, but there's potentially hundreds or thousands that are surrounding them as well, that are listening to every word that Jesus has to say. And um, these weren't, again, a bunch of educated, we talked about this a couple weeks, these weren't educated people, these weren't super sophisticated people that had it all figured out. This wasn't the religious elite standing before Jesus, listening to him present this message. This was his disciples, and these were common folk, sort of like Jesus himself, like Jesus didn't grow up as a religious elite necessarily. He was a carpenter from Nazareth. And Jesus was this local boy to Galilee. He grew up there and now it turns out that there's something different about Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks, it says that he speaks with authority. There's something different about him. He speaks with wisdom. The, the things that Jesus communicates, the people have never heard before. Their minds are literally being blown by what it is that Jesus has to say. And so Jesus has this massive following this building and this massive appeal. And, and um, as he gathers these people on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to paint this portrait, this, this sort of picture of what it means to live the Christian life here on this planet. And so Jesus has been using terms like kingdom of heaven. And what he's been saying is that there's a completely different set of values that Christians subscribe to. 
because Christians recognize that this planet isn't our home, is it? Uh, ultimately, we, we have an eternal place that God is taking to us, an eternal home and, and ultimately an eternal destiny. And so we as Christians recognize that this planet is sort of short term, that we actually belong as citizens to another kingdom in another place. And, and so we, we are these kingdom of heaven citizens that Jesus talks about. And because of that, Jesus goes on in the sermon to talk about the fact that Christians will value things very differently than the world values things. So we learned that Christians value what? A couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact Christians value mercy. We, Christians value gentleness. Christians value peacemaking. Christians value humility. And, and as followers of Jesus, we, Christians live their lives actually applying these things, living into these things. And, and people actually begin to take notice as we live into these things in our lives. And then Jesus says, um, after this, he says, you've basically become salt and light. And we know salt and light, they're, we're, they're influencers. We're change agents in this, this world that God's placed us in. And so Jesus says, this is what it means to be in the world on this planet, but not of the world and not owned by the culture. And so he paints this picture for us. And at the same time, he does something really radical, in fact, if you want to have a better understanding of why Jesus was eventually killed, this is exactly why. Uh, Jesus was confronting the teachings of these religious leaders of the day, these Pharisees and these Sadducees that he talks about. And so, I, I mean, understand that the, uh, the, the, the way that the Jewish society saw it, God spoke to these religious leaders, the religious leaders would then speak to the people, um, and these everyday folk that didn't have the training and the education that the religious leaders did. And, and so Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 5, verse 20, and he says this. He says, here's the thing about the kingdom of heaven. He, he says, you won't enter it unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. So imagine being a common folk standing on the hill and listening to Jesus talk about this and, and hearing and thinking to yourself, great, like what chance do I have of becoming anything like them? Like they're the religious elite. It's like it's impossible for my righteousness to surpass that of a Pharisee. And so in the people's minds, the Pharisees, again, they were like these pillars. They were icons of, of, of virtue in this Jewish culture. But then Jesus goes on to explain that their righteousness is actually self-righteousness, which actually in Jesus' mind isn't righteousness at all. You see, that they think they can earn their way to God and that that's how it goes. And so these are the men that, that would take the Old Testament and then they would begin to create their own interpretations of the law and the Old Testament and then they'd begin to explain it to the people in their own words. And, and then they would add a bunch of stuff to it. And, and so Jesus says to the people, the, the religious leaders, like these Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees, they, they make it oppressive for you. They, they actually make it burdensome for you because they add all of this stuff to it and they're not even actually teaching God's heart and what it was that God had delivered to his people. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he basically says, let me give you a better understanding of what God actually teaches, what his heart was and what he shared in the Old Testament, which then immediately causes these these religious teachers to kind of be like, excuse me? 
Like, are you changing the game on us, Jesus? Like, are, are you teaching something that's outside of what God himself gave us? And so then what happened? Like, it became a threat to their authority. They begin to realize that what this guy is teaching actually contradicts what it is we're telling people. It undermines our authority. And ultimately, what do they end up doing to Jesus in the end? Killing him. Because they feel like he usurped the authority of the religious leaders that, that, that were in place. So as we saw last week, Jesus pulls out this one commandment and he, and he says, basically, like, let's talk about murder. Like, you've heard it said, is what he says, that is to say, your religious leaders tell you that murder is wrong. It's, it's one of the 10 commandments, thou shalt not murder, don't commit murder. And, and Jesus basically says, which is correct, like, you, you shouldn't go out and murder, They're quoting it accurately, but then Jesus goes on to say, but here's the problem. It's not just the act of like taking a a life in homicide that that constitutes murder. It's not just killing somebody that constitutes murder. Last week we talked about this. Jesus goes on to say that that he, he broadens the commandment. He like deepens it. And so what Jesus says is it's actually possible for you to open your mouth and speak murderous words towards other people. And so remember Jesus says if you look at someone and you, you, you call them fool, we talked about last week, or moron, you, you idiot, like guess what you've just done? You, you've spoke murderous words and there's murder in your heart is basically what Jesus is unraveling, getting to the core of it. Like what is the deeper heart issue that actually manifests itself in murder? And, and, and so Jesus is basically saying like, at the core of it is anger, it's the heart issue, it's the seed that actually transpires and it ends up manifesting itself in murder. Like the very action of murder comes from anger in the heart. And the Pharisees thought like we can like put people down. Pharisees thought we can belittle people, we could even call them names, as long as we don't actually take their life. As long as we don't kill them, we can belittle them and make them less. And Jesus basically says no. Like Jesus wanted to actually move beyond the, the letter of the law and actually get to the spirit of the law. And this is what Jesus continues to do in the text that we're in today. Like I've been dreading talking through this text because it is so harsh. Um, you know, when we get into lust and we look at lust in our day, it is rampant. It's everywhere around us. Like it's almost like the culture has shaped itself in such a way to just devour Christians with this one specific sin. And we have to get at the heart of why Jesus is saying what he's saying. What is it that he's trying to draw out when he says this? My question for you this morning is, do you recognize this morning that there's no one like Jesus? When they say there was nobody that spoke with the authority and the wisdom that he had, like there's nobody like him, do you recognize this morning that there's nobody like Jesus, that there's no other teacher, that there's no other leader in history, present or future, like Jesus? No one spoke like Jesus spoke. Like how could they? Jesus was God literally in the flesh. And so it's not surprising if you look at John chapter six, when asked about following somebody else, Peter says this, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like, you are the only one that we should follow. And so these are the words. I mean, I just want you to understand as we get into the sermon of Jesus, these are not just the words of some good teacher, some awesome prophet that walked this earth for 33 years of his life and did some good things. We're talking about the words of God himself. Nobody like him in history. Like we're studying the words of God himself coming through Jesus in the flesh. Amen? It's It's real. It's not like a cartoon or some fictitious story we're reading about. And so it's important for us to see that Jesus is doing two things throughout chapter five as we read through it. Like first, Jesus is actually helping those that are listening to understand that all of them are guilty before God. You may not have committed murder, but you've done it in your heart. You may not have committed adultery, but you did it in your heart. And he's, 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 bringing, he's leveling the playing field. Like you are all guilty. Some of them may have been patting themselves on the back because they had not done something really bad like murder someone. (laughs) And then Jesus goes, even if you haven't murdered, what about your anger issue? Because it starts there. What about the things you say to others and the way you belittle them are murderous words coming from your mouth? Which of us in this room this morning are not guilty if God looks at our hearts? There's not one of us. So the first thing is that God, through Jesus, sort of reveals the fact that there is a problem. It's sin. And we all actually deal with it. There's not one of us that escapes it. We all have an issue and we need something. And so this whole idea of like God being the judge and him being the one who can actually send a soul to hell. I mean, this is like only God can do that. But secondly, at the same time, Jesus is also helping those that are listening to what it is he's saying by, by providing them with guidance, like in terms of where their true righteousness is found. So there's hope in what Jesus is saying as well. It sounds really harsh, but he doesn't end there. There's actually hope in this. And so he's clearly pointing them to look at their hearts. He's calling them, us, to pay attention to our hearts this morning, to deal with our hearts, to care about and cultivate what's happening inside of us, to, to worry about those things. Because it's not just about what you do, it's about where it all starts, And so I want you to remember those two things this morning, that that Jesus is revealing something, that there's a problem, but Jesus is also giving some guidance, and there's some hope in this as well as we read through this. Jesus actually wants us to see this morning that we are guilty, but then he's offering us this whole aspect of guidance, like of, of a promise, of healing, of freedom. And so I want you to keep those in mind as we go this morning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you. And um, I just earnestly ask, Jesus, that you have your way in this room this morning, that you take your word, God, that you be the one to transpose it into the hearts of the people that are here this morning. Um, Lord, that is not my job. It's your spirit's job to take your word and lodge it into our hearts. And so I ask this morning, Jesus, that this morning would be a freeing experience for some in this room, that this morning be eye-opening 
and revealing, but on the same token, there'd be a ton of hope, Jesus, for what lies ahead. I pray that your spirit would just bathe this time in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5, 27 through 30 says this. You've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Aren't you guys glad you're here this morning? I'm just so glad you're here. Those of you that are new are like, I'm never coming back here again. Um, so Jesus begins with this teaching, talking about the, the, the sixth commandment of the 10. And, and, and so Jesus, now he moves on and he gets to number seven. And he says, you've heard that it was said that you should not commit adultery. That's what the law says. And so I, I want you to stop there for a minute and listen to that. I want you to see that Jesus begins the same as he did in verse 21, like simply pointing those that are listening back to the Ten Commandments, like you've heard that it was said, but unlike the Sixth Commandment, which actually dealt with murders, we talked about last week, this one deals with adultery. And so what we're going to see this morning is that what Jesus really wants us to think about is the kind of heart that inspires adultery. What is it in the heart that leads to that action? And that's why the, we could say that the, the first verse of this section, verse 27, is kind of focused on three things that I wanna get at this morning. The, the external side of lust, the internal side of lust, and then I wanna get into the eternal side of lust in these few verses that we're in this morning. The first one in verse 27, Again, just to read it because I know you like it and you want to hear it again. It says, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. And so Jesus is saying, just like the heart that, that's full of anger that leads to murder, this lust-filled heart actually leads to adultery. Like in almost every case, the, the husband or the wife who breaks their marriage vows, or the husband or wife who betrays their spouse is actually carried along by their sexual desires in almost every case. It starts with lust and it's carried along by their sexual desires and it leads to betrayal and it leads to adultery. And I, I know that there's often other factors that influence those decisions that, that people make, but really misinformed or like misdirected sexual desire in us is what drives sexual behavior. And so we have to understand what God built us for because not all lust is bad, right? Like there is a lust, there is a desire, that word means desire, that is actually good as God planned for it in the confines of the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Any husbands in here like you lust after your wife on a daily basis? Only three of you. <laughs> We're gonna do another class starting next week. We're gonna break out of this and talk about relations between husbands and wives. <laughs> Gosh, I expected you husbands to be like, oh yeah, and you guys were like. <laughs> Your wife's like, get that hand up, man. 
But the same thing is really true for those of you that are single um, men or women. Um, single men and women get involved with married folks sometimes. And um, they, they do that out of this sexual desire that actually starts out, like as we go back, like it starts out as misdirected desire. It wasn't as God intended for it to be. And we just ride that train and we get on it and it leads somewhere that we actually never intended to go. And so even the, the Ten Commandments, they actually point themselves back to the heart of adultery. Anybody remember the last commandment, commandment number 10? Anybody? It starts with, you shall not covet. Yeah, covet. Um, actually, it starts out, you shall not cover, covet your neighbor's house. And then it goes into, or his wife, which is a little worse than coveting his house, I think. Um, um, or your male or female servants. Um, or his donkey, you know, like, just, let's just get to the deepest depths of it all. Like, um, you shouldn't be coveting your neighbor's donkey. Uh, but basically, the heart of it all is don't get anything that's not yours. If God never intended for it to be yours, like, don't go after it. Don't desire it. It's not for you. And, and so, uh, um, that has to do with the state of the heart, doesn't it? So it's interesting that we go back to the Ten Commandments and coveting is not necessarily, it's not like you're going and you're raiding your neighbor's house and you're staking your post and taking it. <laughs> it's, you're coveting it. So it's something that has started in the heart, a desire in you to have what your neighbor has. Honestly, we're gonna talk more about the sexual side of things, but this week I told my wife, I'm like, how in the world, and this is an honest question for you guys, how in the world can we be on Instagram and Facebook and not covet? Is it possible? Like that, that's just an honest question that I've been processing all week. Is it possible? Because even if you're not looking at a woman or a man with lustful thoughts, you're, you're coveting somebody's adventure, you're coveting somebody's life, you're coveting things they have. Like it is impossible to scroll through Facebook or Instagram and not desire something that is not yours. If, if there's anybody in this room that does not do that, I'd love to talk to you. It's very hard, which then like begs this deeper question, like why the heck do we even play around with it if that's, if that's where it goes? So, you guys are, again, you're glad you're here this morning. So, Back to the, the Ten Commandments, and so even in that Tenth Commandment, it starts in the heart as this coveting. And again, it has, to, it has to do with the heart. And so as with murder, like I, I think that our society in general um, still sees murder as wrong, doesn't it? Like morally, murder is wrong. And I still think that we, we have enough of like kind of a, a moral foundation in our society that we even think that adultery is wrong for the most part. Um, and, and I know that can be argued a ton of different ways, but um, for the most part, I think our culture thinks that adultery is a moral failure. Like, uh, at least they think that it's some sort of a painful betrayal, like there's something wrong with it. And, and so in, in maybe in some cases, in, in books or movies, um, adultery, though, nowadays is actually glamorized, isn't it? it it's, 
It's painted as exciting. It's actually painted as passionate, as some sort of guilty pleasure. And, and I don't believe that most people in most cases think that, though. I really don't. I really do think that it, they think it's betrayal and there's something morally and ethically wrong with it. In the, in the time of Jesus, um, adultery was, of course, like rightly considered immoral. Like it was wrong. It was viewed as a violation of God's commands. Like, you shall not commit adultery. And so for that reason alone, you had many of those um, who had not committed adultery, um, but yet Jesus is pressing the issue a little bit further. Um, Because what they begin to think was like, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm actually a little bit more righteous than my neighbor who has. Like, that dude did something really wrong. I haven't gone there yet. And that's the heart of the matter that Jesus starts to get into. Uh, And this is exactly why Jesus takes us back to the heart, just as he did in verse 22 last week when we were talking about murder. He goes on to say, verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we know that the commandments prohibited adultery. Um, And Jesus goes on to say that, I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has actually committed adultery with that woman in his heart. So again, coming back to what I said before, like misdirected sexual desire um, is a problem both on the inside and on the outside because it wreaks havoc on us on the inside and it ends up manifesting itself on the outside. It becomes adultery. And what's, what's so hard about this passage, but true, is that Jesus goes on to say um, that uh, he talks about for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And, and so one of my thoughts this morning was like, will God condemn? Would God judge like the, the unremorseful, the unrepentant adulterer? Yeah, but God will actually judge anybody who has not turned their heart to Christ. It doesn't matter what the sin, but these are things that will keep you from God. They will run you down a hole that leads you ultimately, as Jesus says, to hell, which is just, I know it sounds so harsh, but um, notice how Jesus talks about lust in even more severe terms than he does anger. And I, and I think, like, Jesus didn't say anger was murder in the heart, but here he says that adultery actually happened, it, it's lust in the heart. And so I think to many people today in our culture, this probably sounds super strange because our society that we live in today wants to believe that each person has sort of a license to lust. Like we, we, we can do that, 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 that lust is healthy, that lust is natural, that, that each person should feel free to basically entertain what other, whatever sexual thoughts that are intriguing to them just as long as nobody gets harassed or hurt. And I mean, honestly, if you look at our society, um, there's really two camps that we find today. 
two polar sides of the spectrum. We find this side that's all about indulgence because what our culture says is that what you feel is actually the most important and defining thing about you. And if you wanna live an authentic life, if you wanna live like a fully fulfilled life, then you have to actually indulge in all of your desires. Take it all in. Get everything you can out of life. Like, take it all. And this is what society is telling us. Like, indulge. What you feel, and particularly with regards to your sexual feelings, is actually the most defining thing about you. So take what it is that you want. If you want a fulfilled life, indulge in it. Take it. Have it. Give in to the desires of your heart. But then the other side of the spectrum is like where the church has been historically is like casting this shadow of fear over the whole conversation. Where it's basically like sex is bad. Desire is bad. Like don't do any of those things. Like you need to actually suppress those feelings. You can't feel them. It's naughty. And so we, we raise our kids up in a culture of feeling as though that stuff is just wrong. And so there's this fear-based side of it. Like, don't have those desires. Like, they're bad unless you're married. And then when you're married, go ahead and just, like, fulfill every fantasy you've been repressing for years in your marriage. These are the two sides of the camp that, that, that we've kind of created in our culture. These are the two messages that we're, th- that we're taught. Like, if you deny your feelings, you're repressing them. And what's interesting is that you see people's lives today now actually being shaped around these two different sides. Like they sort of have reacted to these camps. Which camp do you fall in? Are you in the fear camp? That's where all the Christians go. Are you in the indulgence camp? This is where all the, the liberals go. Like which camp are you gonna fall in? Like we, we've set up these two different camps. And then you get into, I think it's interesting, you get into like the, the whole Me Too movement and other movements that have been like the Me Too movement. And these movements have basically said, like, wait a section, wait, wait a second. Like, if you indulge in all of your desires and you have power and you have money and you have prestige and you've got some authority, then you can actually manipulate people into doing some really awful things. And I think our culture finds itself in a really interesting place because movements like this are actually shining a light on the real issue. And honestly, church, I think that our culture is at the best place today. The pump has been primed for God's word to come through and help people find a plumb line. What's truth? Because we've seen what indulgence does and we've seen what happens when we live in fear. Where's the middle ground? And like, where is the plumb line? What does God's word say? People are looking for truth. And we have it in God's word to teach people what God's word says. And I actually think these movements like this are priming the pump for people to kind of grow hungry, develop a hunger for something that's right because the two camps they've seen are not it. And I think that our culture is starting to wake up to the fact that there must be a better way than to either indulge and completely live in fear. Like, our culture is always throwing temptation and lust at us. Like, we're bombarded on a daily basis. Like, advertisements that scream, like, desire me. Like, outfits that scream, like, take another look. Like, just get another glance. Show a little skin. TV shows that we watch that, and social media that are just like, be like this. Influencers that we see on social media that are telling us to be like them. Or our peers that we hang out with that are telling us 
Everyone's doing it. Or pornography that's telling us, like, indulge yourself. No one will know. It's not going to hurt you. Like, that's, just take it all in because that's your private life. It hasn't manifested itself in any physical action yet. You haven't murdered anybody. And I think those are just a few examples of this like hyper-sexualized culture that we live in. And here's the truth. Like we talked before, God created sexual desire. Like he, he, he made the physical aspect of unity with a person and the relational aspect of unity with a person to actually go hand in hand with one another. God did that. God created that. And this is like Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Like he gives us this opportunity to have those relationships with our husband or our wife. And so the, the, this whole physical connection with, with relation to sex was actually created for this relational connection that happens only in the confines of marriage. And so again, any sexual desire that we have that's directed anywhere else outside of our spouse is misdirected and it's wrong. It wasn't as God intended for it to be. And I think this idea is totally foreign to our culture. Um, there's several ways that I think that the, this whole like lust-driven heart harms us in our lives, and I wanted to share the, these four thoughts with you guys. The first one is that I think this whole like lust-driven heart it sort of trains us to prefer fantasy over reality. It trains us to prefer lies over truth. Like we live in a society that's constantly creating fantasies because people want an escape from what's real. We can't handle what's real on our own, so I need to create a world that I can live in that actually gratifies me the way that I can be gratified because what I'm experiencing in life is too hard. Like we need Jesus. It is too hard. We desperately need Jesus. But the second is this, that, that, that this lust-driven heart, it kind of places us back in this self-centered prison that Jesus set us free from. Like it wraps you back up in the stuff that he died for to free you from so that you would not be in bondage to these things. Um, C.S. Lewis, 70 plus years ago, I mean, understand that before I read this, sort of talks about these two points in this quote. He says, for me, the real evil of lust would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use, that is in marriage, leads the individual out of himself to complete his own personality in that of another. And finally in children and even grandchildren and turns its back. He sends the man back into the prison of himself there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever, getting, his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he's always adored, always the perfect lover, no demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. And in the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. Isn't that crazy? This is 70 years ago. Like C.S. Lewis was not facing some of the cultural things that we are today. It's even crazier. The third harm is this, is 
that it distorts our perception of others. I mean, you've got to understand this part. This is so key because when we have these lust-ridden, sort of lust-driven hearts, it basically reduces people to becoming sexual objects. That's all they are. They're bodies and they're parts. They're not souls. They're not people that God actually created. Listen to this quote. Lust totally ignores the image of God in others. It flattens fully formed people. It misses their inner beauty. It minimizes their hopes and dreams. It robs people of their identity as a daughter or son, as a sister or brother, as a husband or wife. It doesn't put thought into that person's unique gifts, their experiences and voice, and instead it demands that person serve its own agenda and the other is eclipsed by the self. Like when you start, one of our elders said this weekend, years ago, he's like, I said no to pornography years ago because all I thought to myself was like, I have a daughter that age. And I think that was such a powerful statement because what we're saying is there's more value to a person than we ascribe to them when we just allow our lust to run us and drive us to take part in things and to be given over to things to just objectify people and not treat them as the creation that God made them. The last one is this, the last harm is this. Like in, in light of those first three points, if you take all of this together, I want you guys to think about the damage that can be done to a marriage or to people's perception of marriage because it waters down what God intended to happen in marriage. The sanctity of it, it dilutes it down. So if I feed that desire to prefer fantasy over reality, if I turn more and more inward and you strengthen that like self-centered part of ourselves, people become these objects and um, relationship starts to tear down and it doesn't become about the community and the relationship that God desired to build that was his intention. It breaks down. And so it changes the way husbands view their wives and it changes the way wives view their husbands and it affects the way young men and young women look at marriage. The way they think about like waiting for a spouse, waiting to find a spouse, like it radically breaks down the whole system. And I hope that what you guys can see in all of this is that lust is so dangerous for you and for I and for people around us. It impacts everybody. Like, can you see why Jesus condemns lust? Why he speaks so harshly about it? Why he gives us this really difficult countercultural rebuke of the lust-ridden heart? Why? Because it doesn't just impact you. It starts as that seed, and when the seed manifests itself, it starts to impact other people. And then it starts to impact generations. And next thing you know, 50 years down the road, we all sit back and we go, how in the world did things get where it got? I can tell you. It started with the seed and some misdirected sexual desire that was in us that was just given over we indulged, we gave ourselves over to people, things that God never in, in, uh, expected to have our hearts. The man or the woman, I think, that desires to please God, who wants to live in fullness 
in the fullness of God's good and perfect design, like, has to take lust seriously. We have to. Because those who are serious about this will actually root it out and cast it away. They'll avoid it. They'll actually hate it. Like, disciples of Jesus cannot minimalize or coddle lust. Like, we have to fight it tooth and nail because our teacher, Jesus, has shown us the destructive power of the sin and how unending it is. Jesus goes on to say in verse 29, you guys okay? He doesn't say that. Maybe he's asking that right now. Are you all right? How's your heart? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So we're gonna hand out knives on your way out this morning. And uh, it's just gonna be an awesome day, you know? <laughs> Everybody's gonna come back next week like. <laughs> Look at what Jesus tells us. Like if the four points that we talked about above, about, about these harms of lust, lust, were like not in and of itself enough to convince us that this is gnarly, that there's consequences for this, then what about your whole body being thrown into hell? <laughs> like Jesus taking it one step further, like Jesus points us to the, the danger that lays ahead for those that are not in Christ. And he doesn't mention it once, but he actually says it twice. Like, I don't know if you read this. I go, like, Jesus, did you have to go as far as to cutting off the hand? You already said pluck out the eye. And like, no, but then he goes even further and he says it again because there's something serious about this. Like, none of us want our life in eternity to be defined by or dominated by God's justice against lust. But God will judge every distortion of his good design. He will. And so here's the, here's the good part of this morning. Is what can we do? Like where's our opportunity? What does it look like to take Jesus' words on lust really seriously? And I think it looks like something drastic, doesn't it? I think it looks extremely drastic because let's be clear, Jesus is not recommending you literally pluck your eye out this morning. And I hope you don't take that with you this morning. Do not go home and try to gouge out your eyes. I don't wanna be responsible for that. Our insurance doesn't cover it. Um, but we know that lust doesn't start in your eye, <laughs> right? That even people who are blind struggle with lust. And so what's Jesus saying? Like G Jesus is kind of exaggerating this statement to get our attention and I think to ask us like, are you willing with, with, with ferocity to take drastic measures to restrain and retrain your heart? Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to, to at least come to grips with the fact that there are some deeper heart issues that we're all dealing with and that we desperately need help from him to deal with them? I've known people in my life that have traded their smartphones for flip phones. I, I, I know people um, that, that have quit their jobs because of temptation with a coworker. I know people that have 
driven a long way around something in order to get somewhere and extended their commute because of something that they did not want to see or a situation they did not want to put themselves in or a billboard they didn't want to see. But if Jesus this morning is calling you to this path of inner purity, then my question for you is, are you willing to go the distance? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to guard your heart this morning and allow Jesus to guide your steps? Because as with anger, Jesus is actually calling us to take seriously the, the, the sort of distorting and destructive power of lust. We have to acknowledge that it's in our society that it's here. And most of us in this room have probably first level experience with somebody that has been through adultery or something in their life, or some of you in this room have experienced it yourself. And we have to take this seriously. So I'm gonna invite the, the worship team to come up here. And I'm gonna end on this. Uh, going into this weekend, I seriously feared this message. And what I feared um, is that it would come across as harsh and hopeless. And um, like how in the world, some of you are asking, how in the world do I even get past lust? Like I, I just can't do it. I struggle with it forever. But uh, what I love about Jesus's Sermon on the Mount is I feel like there's this great blessing and this encouragement buried in this sermon that Jesus is giving that he doesn't stop there. Like, is Jesus revealing to us this morning some really deep heart issues throughout this passage? Yeah, I hope so. Like, honestly, I, I told my wife last night, how am I supposed to stand up there and tell everybody to deal with your lust? Because I know that even in my own week, there's plenty of times that I, you know, walk into a grocery store or something and you see something and, you know, you're like trying to get your eyes to stop looking at it. Like, we're all going to leave this place and we're going to see things. We're all going to be tempted, but there is a drastic difference between lust and temptation. Because you will see it, I guarantee you. Like, anybody gone downtown between April and September in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho? Like, everybody's shirts come off come April 1st. It's just insane. It's impossible to go down there and not see something that you didn't want to see. But the question is, is like, what is happening in your heart when you see it? Because you can see it and bounce away. Jesus himself was tempted and he never sinned, right? You can see it. The question is, what do you allow that to produce within your heart when you see it? Where do you allow your mind to go? Where do you start moving towards? How do you misdirect the desire that God put in you once you start seeing something and then feeling it and then starting to actually allow it to manifest itself? And so if we stopped at this point this morning, like I, I'm, one of my fears was that we'd be left kind of dangerously close to the edge of one of two drop-offs. Um, one is either some of you would be left saying, um, I just have to do better, or there's no hope for someone like me. And we need to see this morning that, I think as we need to see probably every morning, that the teachings of Jesus should not only bring us to 
an understanding of our inability to just be better. But we should also see his guidance this morning. Where is he directing us? And that's actually found in his gospel. Like that, that's in his, the heart of the gospel. There's really, really good news for those of you that are suffering, that are struggling with a lust corrupted, ridden heart this morning. There's actually really, really good news for you. That the same Jesus who condemns and exposes our hearts is the same Jesus who was actually condemned for our hearts. Isn't that crazy? Like he's revealing it to you so he can deal with it. Because you cannot, you cannot. Like on the cross, Jesus took my condemnation upon himself. He, he took upon himself the, the hell that I deserved in order to give me an eternity that I don't deserve. And um, on top of that, Jesus' resurrection means new life for us, right? That we aren't defined by our past and where we've been and what we saw and what we did. It means a new heart. It means a new spirit for you in this room this morning. And so how can we pursue the purity that Jesus describes in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, not through our own power? We can't do it. But we do it through this new power that Jesus has given us through his spirit, a power that comes literally from God's spirit himself. And Jesus has made this possible. His forgiveness for a life of impurity and power for a new life of purity. Like this is really, really good news. This is the hope side of it, is that I hope in you this morning, maybe having a flashlight shined on the condition of your heart, you don't go, oh man, I just gotta be better. Or on the other token, you're sitting there going like, I'll just never change, I've always dealt with this. But this morning you see the opportunity that in God's revelation of the true state of your heart, he's also saying, I sent my son to give you freedom from the things that have entangled you. To rescue you from the pits of despair. To set your feet upon a rock. In in Luke chapter seven, um, I promise I'm ending. You guys can stand with me. Uh, Jesus goes in the home of Simon Peter, uh, this Pharisee. Um, who's invited him over for this meal. And in verse 37 of that chapter, it says this, a woman of the city, a prostitute, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And I think uh, it's interesting that Simon Peter, you know, was disgusted by this behavior and shocked that Jesus would actually allow her to do this. Like, and Simon says, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is Uh, this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And after sharing this short parable about forgiveness and the gratefulness that it should produce, uh, in verse 44, turning towards the women, the the, the woman, um, Jesus says to Simon, like, do you see this woman? 
It's a really, really neat verse. Like, do you see her? And I think that Jesus is asking this question, um, in asking this question, was asking about more than just recognizing her, her presence. Like, do you, do you see her? Oh, of course I see her. But I think that the men of that city saw her completely differently, didn't they? She was the woman of the, woman of the city. She was a sinner. She was a prostitute. And Jesus saw her completely differently. He saw who she was, who he made her to be, not how she was living. He saw who she was. And he actually wanted Peter to see her differently. And so the, the word is interesting. It is in, in uh, Luke 7, 44, for this word see, is actually the same word in Matthew 5, 28 for looks at. And so it sort of begs this question this morning, like how do you want to look at others? How do you wanna see them? Do you wanna see them through the eyes of their sin? See them through the eyes of yourself? Or do you wanna see them through the eyes of Jesus this morning? And my prayer for you, Anthem Church, as we come, came into this weekend, um, is that we would long to see as Jesus sees, amen? And be seen by others with the same eyes that he sees us. And so this morning I have no clue where most of you are at in life. I have no clue what layers of the onion Jesus is peeling back this morning in your heart. No clue what's going on in your marriages, in your relationship with others. I have no clue what your hidden past is, your hidden present is. I have no clue um, the anguish that you might be feeling inside this morning. I have no clue what you're feeling, but the promise that I can assure you this morning is that there's a Jesus that gave his life for you to free you from the anguish that you're in, to release you from the bondage that you find yourself in, for us to be a church that isn't ruled by and directed by the lust of our hearts, like our selfish lust, but that our desire would be directed by Christ himself, and that we would be a church despite no matter what people have gone through and what they've done, no matter how broken or jacked up their past is, that they would be seen by us through the same eyes that Jesus sees them through. People that desperately need the grace and the forgiveness and the love and the compassion, the kindness, the gentleness, and the mercy of Jesus Christ, amen? You guys pray with me. Jesus, um, I just wanna thank you for your grace this morning. Um, God, as I know that even as I talk about this this morning, um, the floodgates are probably gonna open up as I walk out these doors and I'm exposed to all the junk in our world. But I pray this morning for us, Jesus, that you would guide our eye, guard our eyes, that you would guard our hearts. I'm praying for those in this room that feel trapped, that feel like there's no hope and there's no way out. Remind them this morning, Jesus, that that's the reason that you bled and you died and you rose again for them to provide the way out. Jesus, you took on the condemnation that we deserve upon yourself, Jesus. And so I pray for new life to be breathed into your church. I pray even for people in this room as we pray this morning, they would leave here with sort of an extra 
skip in their step, God. They would leave here feeling as though the weight and the bondage that they've once felt is being lifted. Jesus, as you step in and you begin to provide new life for them by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for marriages in this room that have been severed as a result of infidelity and adultery. God, it is not the end. You promise to reconcile all things, Jesus. And so I pray that as they look to you, as the couples in this room turn their gaze to you, that you would do the hard work of rebuilding and laying a new foundation that's stronger than the one that was broken before, one that would last them forever into eternity. And Jesus, would your hand be upon your church this morning? As I know that as we leave these doors, we are exposed to all the junk that we're walking back out into. God, I pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us to choose what it is we see, to guard what it is we say. God, to protect our hearts from the things that the world is just like swirling around us, causing destruction and taking away the hope that you've promised us, Jesus. May your church be a blessing, God. You've saved us to be a blessing. And so I pray in your name, Jesus, that your church would leave in the power and the grace and the presence of the Most High God and walk in the blessing that you've bestowed upon them. In your name we pray, amen. As we worship this morning, um, we're gonna have some people down here to pray. And if the Lord's leading you and you need somebody just to cry with you, somebody to lay hands on you and pray with you, um, we would love the opportunity to do so. And we'll be down here just waiting for any of you that need any assistance this morning. Have a really blessed week. Let's, let's worship and uh, give God the majesty due his name, amen, and worship him as we leave this morning.